the book of Jeremiah. So this morning, I've asked Aisha if she would read our passage for us, starting in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4. And we're going to read through Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 4. Reading through Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. And if you follow along in your Bible, it'll make it just that much better. So I highly encourage you to open your Bible or your phone or whatever you're using and follow along as... Aisha reads. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep their time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord, so, that, so what wisdom is in them? Therefore I will give their wives to others, and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From, from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vines, nor figs on the fig trees. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do we sit still, gather together, let us go into the fortified cities and perish there? For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of the stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adlers that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. My joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length of breath, breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is in my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Galliot? Is there no physician there? Why then has the healeth of my daughter, of my people, not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. 
Thank you. Thank you. My mother used to tell me this story uh, about when she was in nursing school. She had a patient that was very sick, was not doing well. Uh, family was there. They were concerned. And my mother walked into the patient's room and she looked at the monitor and his heart had flatlined. Now, I remember my mom was in nursing school. She had no business to make this call nor alert the family. But being the go-getter that my mother is, she went out to the waiting room and she told the family, your loved one has passed. They came into the room in tears and said their goodbyes, weeping. Finally, the family was able to leave the room. They went back up to the, to the waiting room. My mother began to clean some things up. And she noticed that the leads had fallen off the patient's chest. Those are the sensors that keep track of your heart. She looked at them sitting on the floor, picked them up. And she said a quick prayer, God, please let him be dead. <laughs> well, God did not answer this prayer. She put the sensors back on the patient. Beep, beep. Yeah. She went back out to the family sitting in the waiting room. You won't believe this. <laughs> um, wow, uh, he's, he's back. <laughs> I think that from that point on, it was all a blur. I want to speak to you this morning on this topic. In need of a physician. In need of a physician. And what I mean by that is, we don't need any quick fix. Our problem is severe. We can come along with quick fixes, but quick fixes, as you guys know, never really do the trick, do they? Meaning you can fix a leaking pipe with scotch tape until you turn the water back on. You could fix a bullet wound with a Band-Aid until you bleed out on, from internal bleeding. Quick fixes never really solve any problems. And we are in need of deep healing. What do we have in common with the people of Jeremiah's day? It is this. Sin. In need of healing. For Israel, they were wounded. Their wound was the affliction that God was bringing upon them and distance from God. A severed relationship. They were in need of more than just simply a quick fix. In Jeremiah's words, in verse 22, he asks this question. He says, is there no balm in Gilead? Not balm, balm, as in medicine. Is there no physician there? 
Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Well, the, the problem is that they've been coming along with quick fixes. In verse 11, we see that the priests and prophets have been lying, and they've been saying there's peace, peace, when there is no peace. We've been dealing with this theme already. Jeremiah is just reminding us of this. They've come along with easy, quick fixes to their problem, but their problem is so much more severe than any quick fix can ever bring along. What do we do with the nagging guilt and condemnation that comes as a result of sin? Oh, there are quick fixes for that. There are plenty of books, probably even in the Christian bookstore, that will give you various quick fixes to your nagging guilt and condemnation of sin. There's plenty of therapy out there that can bring along some band-aids and some quick fixes, but we need more, don't we? We need more than just a quick fix. Now, why was Israel so broken? Why are they in need of such healing? Let me just break this text down for you a little bit before we begin to understand how it applies to us today. First, for Israel, their rebellion, Jeremiah says, was unnatural. We see this in the first seven verses, one through seven. Meaning, have you ever seen birds migrating? in, say, around uh, fall, or maybe coming back into the warmer months, these, these flocks of bird in their formations. Like, have you ever wondered, how do they know it's time to go south? It's amazing, isn't it? I think we call that instinct, don't we? They instinctively know that it's time to go. This is actually what Jeremiah says uh, uh, is the problem with God's people is that you don't instinctively know what God requires, but you should. Look at verse 7. He, he says, just as the stork in the heavens knows her times, the turtle, dove, swallow, and the crane, they keep timing. My people don't know the rules of the Lord. What he's saying is, is that for God's people... Knowing what God requires, following his law, being obedient to God, should be as instinctive for us as it is for the birds, knowing what time to fly. Meaning people should look at uh, God's people and say, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they know. It's just instinct. But there is this unnatural bent to us because of sin. Sin has perverted us. It's taken away uh, aspects of our being that ought to be natural, and therefore God's people are acting unnaturally, and they're sinning against God. Secondly, he goes on, and he explains that they have corrupted, they've twisted God's word. Look at verse 8. He says, how can you say that we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. What's he talking about there? I want to pause on this for just a moment. Do you know who Jeremiah's father was? Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. It was a man named Hilkiah. Where does Hilkiah appear? Well, around Jeremiah's day, Hilkiah appears in 2 Kings chapter 
22. Let's turn there if you would. 2 Kings chapter 22. This is toward the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. King Josiah was reigning in Judah at the time. This was, these were some good days for Israel, for Judah. What is that, popcorn we have over here? I, I feel like I hear popcorn coming from the... Is that, is that rain? Okay, sorry, I was distracted. All right, second, second Kings, sorry about that. Second Kings 22. So Josiah is bringing reform to Israel. And what's, what, what's happening here in ch chapter 22 is they're renovating the temple. And while they're renovating the temple, in verse 8 we see Hilkiah, who I think very likely is Jeremiah's daddy, all right? Hilkiah was the high priest. And as they're doing these temple renovations, he says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Meaning, as they're going through the temple, this high priest, Hilkiah, maybe in a, a dark corner somewhere, in a closet, behind a closet, we don't know, someone had hid a copy of God's Word. And he got excited because he found it. Now, did they not have copies of the Scriptures? Well, they must have because they were following something, they were reading something earlier. What did they have? Well, what they had, I think, were twisted copies. They had perverted copies of Scripture. Jeremiah says the, the scribes, scribes were like the people who were uh, copying one text, making it, uh, uh, or turning it into a copy, essentially, distributing the text. The scribes had lied. The scribes had twisted God's Word and made their own version of God's Word that probably fit their sinful desires and the sinful desires of the people. Why is it that here in 2 Kings chapter 22, Hilkiah gets excited? Why is it that the king in verse 11, Josiah, he hears the words of the book of the law and he tears his clothes? He's excited. Why? It's because they found an unadulterated copy of God's word. Here's what I think may have happened. At some point, the scribes are making copies of God's word that are straight up lies. Twisting God's word. And maybe some priest had come along who was a godly man and hid a copy of the book of the law somewhere in the temple. And that's what Hilkiah found. I think that's likely. Whatever it was, it leads Jeremiah in chapter 8, verse 8, going back to say, how can you say that we are wise when you're reading this twisted version of God's Word. You, you've got the lying pen of the scribes before you. And as a result, as a result in verse 10, they're, they're, they're all unjust. In verse 11, they're declaring peace when there is no peace. In verse 12, he says they don't even know how to blush. They have no shame at their sin. In verse 13, they are absolutely and utterly fruitless. What's their issue? They've twisted God's word. It goes on in verse 14 and 15, and I, and I believe here, 
Additionally, they are blaming God for their own sin. They're blaming God for the problems that their own sin has brought upon them. I'm mad at God, this guy said to me once. Why? Well, essentially, he was mad at God because he sinned. It brought a bunch of problems into his life. And he continued to sin. And he's mad at God because God allowed him to do all of that. And allowed these problems to come into his life. I, told, I asked God to take away these desires. He never did. What am I supposed to do? This is what, uh, what's happening here in verse 14 and 15. I think Jeremiah is quoting uh, the words of Israel. They say this, Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go to the fortified cities and die there, perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We look for peace. But no good came for a time of healing. But behold, there's only terror. What they're saying is they're like this whiny sort of sinner who all of a sudden has consequences and problems and judgment as a result of their sin. And, and they're like, okay, I see the problems. I see the problems that my sin has brought me. And my response is to now fight back against these problems with all that I've got and to try to make the best of it, to go to the fortified cities, to do what I can do to remedy the problems that I now have in my life as a result of my sin. God has poisoned me. God has brought this calamity upon me. I ask for peace. I ask God to come along and change. He knew that I struggled with this sin, but he didn't take away that struggle. He knew that I had this desire to do this, but he didn't take away that desire. I asked him to. I sought out peace. I asked him, and he didn't do anything. So therefore, it's his fault. Have we ever reasoned like this before? This is, isn't it like some scary way? This isn't all that foreign to us, is it? Verse 16 and 17, the army is coming. It sounds horrific. Judgment is coming as a result of their sin. The covenant has been broken. The covenant curse has come upon them. And then beginning in verse 18, we see Jeremiah's sorrow. And I don't think this is just Jeremiah's sorrow. I think if we could skip forward to chapter 9, verse 3, we see that it's also God. I think in some sense, Jeremiah is experiencing the sorrow of God for their sin. Meaning if God can have wrath, he can have sorrow. And I think we see both in this passage. Like a divorce, for instance. You can imagine a man uh, or a woman who's sought after their erring spouse for a very long time, and they finally, it's ending in divorce. You can imagine the mixture of anger and sorrow. I think that's what Jeremiah is experiencing here. As he says in verse 18, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick within me. This sorrow is thick. It is severe. He asks these questions, likely it could be the people that he's quoting here, the people of Israel. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is your king not here? In verse 19. Meaning, isn't God around? 
Aren't we God's people and isn't His presence among us? And I think God is answering this question with a a, a yes in the very next phrase. But then with another question. God says, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and their foreign idols? God is, I think he's saying, yeah, I'm here. So why have they done this? God's presence has been in Zion. It's not that God has abandoned them. So why have they turned in the face of God's presence? Why have they turned to their idols? The height of Jeremiah's sorrow is seen in verse 20 and 21. It's a pretty brutal image. He says, the harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. Now, if we could kind of go back to an ancient agricultural society, when do you get your food? What time of year? When do you grow it? Summertime. When do you harvest it? Autumn. Harvest season. Meaning, um, if you sort of fail during summer and harvest, and you go into winter, there isn't a save-a-lot around the corner to go get your canned goods. And what he's saying is, tying this into this earlier thought that they're fruitless, what he's saying is, is spring came, we never put any seed in the ground. Summer came, we never watered it, we never cared for the plants. We haven't done any of the hard work that fruit requires. We've gone through the harvest and we have found our lives to be fruitless and now we're going into winter. We're dead. That's what he's saying. It's too late. It's hopeless. You know that phrase, sometimes we say God is never late. He's always on time. You know, you know that phrase? He's on time. He's an on-time God, right? Amen? Amen? Well, what Jeremiah is saying is, is yeah, it's not that God's late. But he's not coming. It's over. Meaning the season has passed. I, let this sit with us for a moment. It is possible, as a sinner, rejecting God, to go through this season in which God is calling us to repent, calling us to turn toward Him, calling us to turn away from our sin and trust in Him alone. It's possible to miss that season, and it's too late. And you're going into winter. And there is no hope. That is a humbling thought, isn't it? For this, Jeremiah weeps. In verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 12, Jeremiah tells us that their hurt is incurable. 
Their wound is one in which they just can't do anything about. A friend of mine works in ER down at Hopkins, and she said that one thing that's hard is when they bring someone in, often a gunshot victim, and they open the individual up, and they just say, there's nothing we can do. Bleeding out. It's a wound that's incurable. It's, you can't do anything about it. It's impossible. This helps us understand Jeremiah's question in verse 22, doesn't it? Let's focus the rest of our time on this question. He says, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Can't the health of this daughter be restored? Gilead was known for its balsam, uh, a substance that would grow from trees. It was used as like an ancient medicine. So when you hear balm, think of a medicine, or even like lip balm might not be a, a bad image. Uh, some, some kind of medicine. He's essentially saying, isn't there any kind of antibiotic over at the pharmacy that can help us? Isn't there a physician over at Hopkins that can do something about this wound? Of course he's not talking literally. He's spiritualizing these concept, concepts. Isn't there, some, isn't there a great physician that can come along and can do something to reverse this curse? Isn't there somebody that could come along and perform a miracle and take a wound that is beyond healing and bring healing to it? Is there a physician out there? Jeremiah in chapter 30 goes on and says, yes, there is. And that physician is God himself. God says in chapter 30, verse 17, he says, but I will restore you to health. I will heal your wounds. I've told you before, a theme in Jeremiah is simply this. What is impossible for man is possible for God. There is no way to, to fix to heal this victim that we have bleeding out on our table. But what's impossible for us is possible for God. And God says there will be healing. I will send a helper. There is a fix, a remedy. Let's talk about healing, shall we? We need some healing, right? Hey, let me just say a brief word on healing. A lot of times we throw this word healing around in, in, in our culture today, don't we? Like everything needs healing. I just, you know, I, 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 Montreal slapped me last week, and I just need to be healed from the emotional wounds that have been brought along with the fact that Montreal slapped me. I was traumatized. I need to be healed. Thank you, thank you. We talk about healing from past hurts. Oh, a healing from emotional uh, pain that we feel. And I get it. I'm not making light of past hurts or emotional pain. 
But I do want to say this. That is not the biblical concept of healing. That kind of belongs in another category. Meaning this, if that is the biblical concept of healing, then we reduce God to nothing more than a therapist who comes along and heals our past wounds, our past hurts, and helps us deal with those things. That kind of mentality, what it basically says is all of my sin struggles today are from not the fact I was born a wretched sinner, but they're the fact that my mom talked to me this way. You see what I'm saying? This is the therapy culture we live in. And that's foreign to the scriptures. The scriptures say, no, your problem is actually much worse than the way your mother talked to you. Like, that sucks. That was bad. Don't get me wrong. But that's not really the healing that you need. So what is healing the scriptures? Well, it's, they're, they're, healing is used in two different ways. And I want to focus on the second. First, healing in the scriptures is physical. That should be a given. They were sick, and they are healed. They were lame, now they walk. They were blind, now they see. God, through the scriptures, brings physical healing to individuals. But even this is actually uh, not the end in and of itself. Meaning the good news of Jesus isn't that he just heals you today for whatever ill you have. Because I don't know if you know this, but everybody at some point still dies. <laughs> right? So that can't be the good news. No, that physical healing is actually a, 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 a symbol of a greater healing that the scriptures point to. And that is spiritual healing. What is spiritual healing? In particular, spiritual healing is, consists of two things. Number one, it is the lifting of the wrath of God. It is a lifting of the affliction that God himself has brought because of our covenant breaking. Are you tracking with me there? Meaning God has made a covenant with his people. In this case, we would call this the Mosaic Covenant. And if they follow the covenant, if they obey God, if they, uh, 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 if they, if they live a life of faithfulness, then they can live in the land and enjoy the presence and the shalom, the peace of God. But if they disobey God, this is what we now call the covenant curses. There are curses attached to this. In their case, it is removal from the land. It is rejection, it is divorce, and you are no longer my people. And you no longer enjoy the shalom of God. You no longer enjoy the presence of God. And ultimately, the covenant that we have broken leads us to our death. The curse of sin is our death. So these are afflictions that God himself brings to humanity, or in particular to his people in this case, because they are covenant breakers, because they are rebels. Healing begins when God lifts those afflictions. That's what Jeremiah is asking. Is there healing possible? And then secondly, it is then, therefore, the restoration of a relationship with God. In order to have a relationship with God, the affliction needs to be lifted. So what would healing look like for Israel? And what does it look like for us? Number one, it is the removal of God's wrath. And number two, it is the restoration of our relationship with God. Let's break these down for a moment and reflect on these things. Number one, it is the removal 
of God's wrath. This last week in our community group, we were talking through different spiritual disciplines and things that we do that are helpful, and one of the things that we wrote down on our paper was confession of sin. And so I asked our community group, how does uh, confessing our sin to each other help us? And all over the room, everybody said, forgiveness, 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 forgiveness. It reminds us of forgiveness, grace. And it struck me, and I paused. Do you know how crazy it is that for Christians, we say confession of sin (laughs) reminds us of forgiveness? The world doesn't think like that. A non-Christian wouldn't think, wouldn't wouldn't say that. Like, for a non-Christian, if we were to say, confess your sins, that's judgment, That leads to divorce. Like, if you're not a Christian, you don't just go home and tell your wife stuff. Right? A confession leads to prison. Confession is not a good thing, according to the world. But for the Christian, when I say to our community group, I say, what does confession mean to you? And everybody responds, forgiveness well, wait a second, I think we've got a little different worldview that we're working with here. What is it that we see? What we understand is that God's wrath has been lifted. What we understand is that the affliction that we deserve because of our sin has been lifted. We understand that as Christians. And then as a result, as we confess our sins to each other, what we are doing is we're just simply naming the things that we are forgiven of. That we have been freed from. The guilt and the shame which we no longer have to bear. Confession for us is freeing. And it brings us into life and forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 53 says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. What's he talking about there? Well, wounds are not a reference to our physical wounds. He's not saying that the death of Jesus Christ brings healing from our cancer in this life. Now let's just pause for a second. Because I don't want to be uh, like, like some who would just fall into a whole different extre- uh, extreme and forget that healing the cancer is actually coming. There will be no pain. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. When is that? It's when Jesus comes back. Meaning all of your physical ailments one day will be gone. Cancer will be no more. Praise God for that. That is not the gospel, but that is certainly a byproduct of the gospel. That God, when Jesus Christ comes back, will bring complete physical healing to all. Yet in this interim time right now, we don't always experience physical healing, do we? Sometimes. But what is, what is he, what's he talking about? What are the wounds he's talking about? Well, it's clear. He says he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, live for righteousness. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. 
Meaning he took the judgment of God on himself. He took the affliction for covenant breaking that should have been ours on his own body in the tree, on, on the tree. He took God's wrath on our behalf. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 simply puts it this way: Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's where we find healing. You know, God's wrath is typically poured out throughout the Scriptures in somewhat of a process. We see the warning comes from the prophet. Sometimes that warning lasts an entire generation, maybe two. Finally, there is the initial invasion, the initial attack from the enemy taken into captivity. His wrath continues to be poured out as, uh, as, as His people now sit in captivity. There's often a process to the way that God pours out His wrath in the Scriptures. But we see one instance in the Scriptures where God's wrath was poured out in a moment. Every drop of it. We see that as Christ hung on the tree, He became a curse for us. As the Scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He bore the curse for our sin in a moment. As one old theologian put it, it's as if God's wrath could be pictured as, as water held back by, an, uh, by a giant dam of God's patience. In one moment, that dam breaks and He removes His patience and on Christ, the entire sum of His wrath is poured out. Every bit of it, every drop of it, and just at the moment it hits Christ, the ground opens up and Christ drinks all of it. And He takes all of the wrath of God for our sin. How does God bring healing to us? First, it is through removing His wrath. Lifting this judgment that he has brought upon us, lifting the affliction that is rightly ours because we are covenant breakers. So Babylon then here in Jeremiah is really a small picture, isn't it? What, what's happening here is actually pretty minor compared to the realities of what it pictures. God's full judgment against sin. Eternal damnation poured out on Christ. You know, in our evangelism, as we share the gospel with others, are we introducing people to therapy? Hey, come and let's kind of figure out how to make you feel better about things. Are we introducing people to quick fixes? Or are we taking people to the healer? Are we introducing people to Jesus Christ and explaining to them what true healing is? And that begins with the fact that Christ took the judgment of sin for God's people. Oh, and by the way, some people come along and they say, oh, Christianity is all about judgment. How can we say that Christianity is about judgment? Christianity is primarily about forgiveness. Forgiveness. 
the story of Christianity, it doesn't highlight the fact that God is bringing judgment. For that, there would be no story. It would just happen. Don't you see? Like that would just be the norm for everybody. But Christianity comes along with a different story and shows us how God, being just and mercy, is coming along and bringing redemption for those who He calls His children. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story of an, being a, an inv- having an invitation to become part of God's family. If you're not a Christian, I want you to ask yourself, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? Like, I don't have to talk to you about judgment. You know you feel judgment. Christians, we've got some, some place to put our guilt and shame. It's not about judgment for us. We're inviting you to join us and to cast your burdens on Christ. To cast your guilt and your shame on Christ. Those of you who are Christians, where is your guilt? It's gone. Where is it? Where is your fear? Where, where is it? I mean, we don't have to fear like we once did. Yes, there are still challenges. And yes, we still have to pay our bills. And yes, people still will fail us. And yes, we still will have some pain in life. But really, where is your fear? There is no fear because there's no fear in death. The worst thing that can happen to us is death. And Christ defeated death. And for all, for all who call upon His name, they have the promise that they are forgiven now and one day will be raised to eternal life to live with Him for all of eternity. This leads us to the second piece of healing, and that is the restoration of a relationship with God. I love the story of Annie. Any Annie fans? Yeah, it's a good story. It's about a relationship, isn't it? It's about a little orphan girl who craves a daddy. And it's about a guy who comes along, you know the story. That's not his intent at first, but it's really about a relationship. It's a father and daughter relationship. It's a father who adopts this orphan child, brings her into his home. She enjoys all of all what is his. It becomes hers now including his love and his affection. The story of Christianity is a story of a relationship. It's a story of not just simply orphans, but people who, uh, whose daddy is actually uh, uh, the devil. And we're locked up with him in sin, in bondage, in our chains. And Christ comes in and breaks those chains and free, frees us from that. For a moment you could say we're orphans, but... Not for long, because he immediately adopts us into his family. And we now call him Father. He is our dad. Christianity isn't just simply introducing people to a list of to-dos. It's not just simply introducing people to check out a new religion that might be different or better than their old religion. No, it's, it's about introducing people to their father. It's about introducing people to the, the, this father who is inviting them to come into his family so that, they, so that he can actually be their father, so that they can call him Abba, Father. Therefore, there is no room for shame. 
You know, you know what a loving relationship is like. When you've got love at the center of a relationship, there is grace, there is forgiveness. There is no room for shame. Listen, friends, as long as there is room at the cross, there's room for you. And if there's room for you at the cross, mean, that means you can find a place where there is no room for your shame, no room for your guilt. The old order is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a story of reconciliation. And if, as we are reconciled with God, we're reconciled with each other. And the church then becomes the family of God. This is where we experience re reconciliation. This is where the old uh, uh, gender wars between men and women, they're obliterated in the church. Because we are reconciled with God, therefore we're reconciled with each other. This is a place where people who grew up uh, 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 in, in a well-to-do, upper-class, all kinds of degrees family, someone else who comes from the streets, they can come together and, and absolute equals in the family of God, brothers and sisters. You want to talk about real racial reconciliation? It happens here. It happens in the church. Well, we recognize that we now, as a result of the healing that God has brought us, experience shalom. His wrath is removed. That doesn't just simply mean that we then have a neutral existence. His wrath being removed means that we are brought back into this covenantal relationship with God. And we are with Him for all of eternity. There's an old African-American spiritual called There Is a Balm in Gilead. There is a balm in Gilead. Not a bomb in Gilead. A balm, B-A-L-M, in Gilead. The question here is asked in verse 22, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? The answer comes, there is a balm. There is a physician. There is hope. Jeremiah chapter 30 tells us this himself. I will heal your wounds. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. What is that balm? Well, you know, Jesus, Jesus himself said that there are going to be those who come along and taunt him and say, physician, he calls himself physician, by the way. This is Luke chapter 4. Physician, heal yourself. Where does that taunting come? Where do we see it? We see it as Jesus is hanging on the cross. Also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 35, those who come along, they jeer him as he hangs on the cross, and they say he saved himself, uh, others. Why can't he save himself? Oh, what a Savior he is. The great physician dying on the cross. 
who doesn't save himself. Why? It's because he is the healing balm. His death is what we need. His blood becomes the very means of our healing. The Pharisees asked him, why does your teacher dine with tax collectors and with sinners? Why is he hanging out with all these broken people? Why is he hanging out with people whose society has rejected? What was Jesus' answer? Do you remember? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. Oh, do you know that you're sick? Do you realize that you are in need of a physician? Do you realize that you are in need of some healing grace? This is why Jesus came to the lame. This is why he came to the prostitute. This is why Jesus came to the tax collector. This is why Jesus came to the sinners. The balm, the medicine that we need is the blood of Jesus Christ. And it brings us into a healing relationship with God. Will you come to Christ this morning? Will you come to Him? Will you come to this balm? Will you receive this medicine? There is room for you. Another old song says, the blood will never lose its power. The blood will never lose its power. Come now to Christ. Come to Him now. Now is the time to run to this physician. You can do it, by the way, at any time. But do it now. Run to Him now. Don't wait. What a healer He is. How great of a price He paid for our redemption. What a physician is the Holy Spirit who comes into our life and does the heart surgery that we need and He changes us and regenerates us. What a Father we have who has adopted us to be His children. And oh, what a Savior is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Father, we thank You for the healing balm of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that we will trust in Jesus Christ, that You will increase our faith, that we will not turn to quick fixes for our guilt and for our shame, but that we will turn to Christ and to Christ alone. Father, we thank You for the Holy Spirit and the surgery that the Spirit has done and is doing in our life. And we thank You that we can call You Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.